You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to make your way to Acts chapter 16, whether you're turning on an app or or finding that in your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, there's one somewhere underneath the seat near you somewhere. That'll be on page 982 in those church-provided Bibles. There are times when I step into this pulpit and... I'll look at just one or two verses, and we will just really get close. We will, we will, you know, microscope uh, mode look at verses. There are other times when I step into the pulpit, and we we pull back a little bit, and we look at a larger section of scripture. We we look at kind of a bigger a bigger view, a high level view. Well, today we're going to look at the entire chapter of Acts 16. The whole chapter. I think because when we pull back and we see it in certain ways, there are things that we can see from that that zoomed out view that we can't see very well in the zoomed in view, and vice versa. And I think what we need to see today needs to be in this zoomed out view. I'm going to take it in parts, and each of these parts could have been an individual sermon, but instead I think we're going to see something important when we see it all together, when we take a look at the whole thing. And by looking at the entire chapter, what we're going to end up doing is we're going to be getting a report from Luke about the first missionary trip to Philippi. Have any of you ever been on a mission trip? Show of hands. Who's been on a, who's gone on a mission trip? Who's done some, some mission work here, wherever, far away, close by? I think, you know, I think we're going to see similar things that we see on mission trips. There's just certain things we see. Jesus builds his church both by expected and unexpected means. You know, on mission trips, you've probably seen things you expected to see. You've done things you expected to do. Typical type things. Some of us have very shared experiences on mission trips, even though we went to very different parts of the world. We went to very different types of things, and yet there's some similarities. At the same time, if you've ever been on a mission trip, you probably know that God does some really unexpected things, things you did not see coming, uh, things that might have been a little bit shocking. It's no different. It was that way for them. It's that way for us. And I think we're going to see that in Acts chapter 16. And for any of you who have not been on a mission trip or not gonna, gone and done mission work, it's my prayer. I've been praying all week that Acts chapter 16 might might stir your heart a little bit. It might encourage you a little bit to consider going on a mission trip somewhere or getting engaged in some mission work, maybe even if it's here. I just hope maybe God would do that. Let's pray, and then we will take a a little journey through Acts chapter 16. Lord, we're going to need your help this morning to see this well. Lord, please speak to us in terms that we can understand. We've been worshiping you, and we've been praising you, Lord, and now we want to hear from you. And I would ask that you would move and stir in us in the exact ways you would have us to to be moved and to be stirred. As you're calling us, as you're you're working in us, Lord, we just want to hear you well and, and be people who do your word. Lord, for those who aren't here, maybe they're watching online, maybe they're not able to be here with us, I ask that you would bless them abundantly And Lord, bless our fellowship, our time together. Thank you that we live in a place and in a time when we can gather together as your people and we can worship together. We just thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to get started here a little bit at a time. We'll start with Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. 
Paul went on to Derbe and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in their numbers. Paul and Silas had already gone through Syria and Cilicia. We saw that when they were uh, working on delivering the letter that was determined at the Jerusalem council. So Paul's been there before. Silas has been there. Next, they travel to Derby and Lystra. Those names might sound familiar. If you remember what we've seen, it uh, didn't go so well when Paul was there. Uh, in fact, it went really badly. Uh, he, was, he was stoned and left for dead, and there was all kinds of problems. And, uh, and so I'm just left to conclude that Paul is really brave that he would go back there. I find that amazing. But they went back there so they could pick up a young man named Timothy to join this mission. Now here's what's interesting if we dialed in, if we, if we just zoomed in and we only read verses 1 through 4, didn't look at what came before and what comes after, we'd actually miss that Silas was even with them. I didn't read Silas's name in this. That, that's from before. But if we were to keep reading, pretty soon Timothy's name comes up, and then we wouldn't realize that, that, uh, ex- that, excuse me, if we kept reading, we would see that we have Timothy but not Silas, and then a little bit later we have Silas but not Timothy, and it isn't until we get to the middle of Acts 17 that we discover that both Silas and Timothy are on this missionary journey with Paul together. Both of them. But it wasn't even just Paul and Silas, and Timothy. There was another guy with them. There's another guy that we don't see named here, but we see him in verse 10. We're going to read here in a few minutes, 16.10. When this guy no longer says, they went, but he instead starts saying, we went. The author of the book joined the mission team. His name's Luke, and he's a part of the team. So it's Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And what do we learn from that? Mission work is a team activity. Mission work takes a team. We do this together. We saw Jesus sent his disciples out in pairs. We saw Paul and Barnabas were sent out as a team. Now Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke are a mission team because mission work is a team activity. There's no lone rangers in mission work. And when it comes to how Jesus builds his church, we should always expect that he does it with a team. We should look for and see team activity. It happened that way then, it happens that way now. This should be an expected part of how Jesus builds his church. It shouldn't surprise us. Neither should it surprise us that because of our sin, the team dynamics can be, unfortunately, not the strongest part of the mission team, but the weakest piece. It is in the team dynamics because of our sin where Satan can attack the work that we're doing so easily. It is in the team dynamics that we find the weakest links and the problems. Paul and Barnabas went through some extremely difficult stuff on their mission when they went to Derby and Lystra and everywhere else. And that didn't stop them. 
That didn't cause them a problem. What stopped their mission work together was a problem with their team dynamics. The team was broken. But mission work should be done in team. And when it's done well in team, that team can become the strongest aspect of what's happening, that group and that unity, and God can do mighty things to build his church. Are you thinking about your mission work or your evangelism or your lost neighbors and co-workers and your lost friends? Are you thinking about that in team? Or are you just thinking about it as a Lone Ranger activity? Are there others involved? Are we reaching our community in team? If not, maybe you should be praying about inviting somebody to come with you, to be a part with you. Maybe you need a prayer partner, and you should pray about actually having somebody else to pray about the mission. Maybe maybe you need someone to invite you because you're not doing this kind of mission work. And you should ask the Lord to have somebody invite you to join them in their mission work, wherever that might be, that you can come along in Christ's church-building mission work in team. We've got some mission training coming up on March 10th. So I want you to hear this as an invitation to come along after church that afternoon. There's information on Realm. We're going to do some mission training. And then we have some mission teams that are going to be here in March for a week. Let it be an invitation. You can come join us. We're going to do mission work around the area here. We're going to have all, all sorts of stuff we're going to do. You don't have to pay for a flight. You don't have to pay for a hotel room. You don't have to eat bugs. Like, this is an easy mission trip. Easy peasy. I would encourage you You consider it. Information will be available on Realm. You can talk to Pastor Josiah. We'll get you plugged into that. Consider that your invitation to come join the team in mission work. Mission work is a team activity. And therefore, we should expect to see that as Jesus is building his church, he's going to do it through ministry teams. That's just the mode in which he tends to use, and we shouldn't be surprised when we see it. Let's take a look at what happens next. Let's look at verses 6 through 10. They, and at this point, it's Timothy, Silas, and Paul, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we... Now we've got Luke, immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now in all the mission work that I have ever done in my life, I have never thought that the Holy Spirit, also referred to as the Spirit of Jesus here in this passage, was prohibiting me from speaking a word. I never thought the Holy Spirit was keeping me from going into missional places. That, to me, seems very unexpected. We read that, we might go, whoa, that's really, that's really shocking, actually. I mean, sure, there's been some times when, when people have stopped me or tried to stop me. Business owners, maybe, maybe government officials in various places will stop mission work. But I've never thought that it's the Holy Spirit stopping the work of Christ building His church. If anything, if we're to be honest, we are usually stopped by our own fear. 
And then it's the Holy Spirit that's like nudging us and pushing us and saying, go, go share a word. Go into this place. I think that's pretty normal. I think we could expect that the Holy Spirit would be working against our fear. We should expect to see that in mission work. But it seems that in Paul's unexpected case, in this shocking case, God actually closed the doors in Asia in order to direct them to go to another area, Macedonia. God had a plan in Macedonia. He had people there. God was moving the team to go there. That was what he wanted to see done. So God closes some doors to shift and direct these people over to the right places. So seeing closed doors in mission work is normal. It is expected Closed doors is how God is shaping things. Furthermore, it is the Holy Spirit who is opening doors and closing doors in order to direct the people where they should be going and what they should be doing. It is how God is working. So in reality, I guess the Holy Spirit has closed doors for me and open doors. I just didn't realize that it was the people that were doing various things and, and, and motivated maybe unaware to them by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit opens and closes doors. That's normal. What doors has God closed to you? More importantly, what doors might God be opening to you? And if he's opening doors so you can share the gospel, maybe you go to another part of the world, maybe uh, God opened doors to bring you here, maybe God is opening a door for you to go across the street to talk to your neighbor, maybe a co-worker... Maybe the lady in accounting, I forgot her name from the kids' sermon, Brenda in accounting. What doors are being opened? What's keeping you from walking through those open doors? What's stopping you? Here's the harder question. What might have happened if Paul was so focused on Asia, couldn't take his eyes off Asia, that he missed the Macedonian call to go to Macedonia. What if he's obsessed with it? Where's your focus? Like, what are you focused on? Is it on the closed doors or the open doors? Are you bemoaning the, the, the closed opportunities you can't do and missing the open opportunities that you can do? Years ago when I was in seminary and I was in bivocational ministry and I was working full-time as a government contractor, uh, I was really busy and I was in seminary dogging through the hard work because I wanted to be in full-time ministry. And the government contracting job was kind of ministry, but it was really stressful and I really didn't like it and I was working with the Army Chaplain Corps and it was crazy. And then all of a sudden the news starts reporting that the government had this big shutdown looming. You know, and almost two decades ago, a decade and a half ago, apparently we, that was a scary thing. We didn't just keep punting and, like we do today. Because the government actually shut down. And the whole time, as this whole thing was looming in the news, I was obsessed. I could not go for even an hour without checking up on the updates and looking at the news and what's going to happen. And then there's all these things, all these meetings in my job and what are we going to do? And I was the new guy. I was a low guy on the totem pole. So if they were going to furlough and lay anybody off, it was going to be me. And I knew it. And I'm stressed out during this season. I'm just worried about keeping a job that I didn't even like. 
I was obsessed with the possibility of these doors closing. And yet, after the government shut down, and I got up that morning and went, oh, I got an email that says, don't bother coming to work today. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what do I do? After I worked through that a little bit, and then eventually I lost my job because that government shutdown went a little bit too long, it was then, at that point, when I was approached about a full-time ministry position at the church here in Utah where I lived, which is what I was looking for and wanting anyway. <laughs> Yet I was so obsessed with the closed doors that I almost missed the opportunity for the open door. This is how God works His will. We want to know what God's will is and what God's doing. It has to do with closed and, and open doors. This doctrine is called the doctrine of providence. If you want to understand providence, if you want to see how God closes and opens doors, if you want to see that in the Bible, which is all over the Bible, but if you really want to see it in the Bible, I would encourage you to read Ruth and Esther. Because, man, those books are like just front and center, providence everywhere. You want to understand how God's working? Open up those books. They're short. You could read both of them this afternoon. God's providence. God was opening doors here. He was closing doors. He was shifting the mission because he's in charge. This is how he builds his church. It might seem like open doors and closed doors are unexpected, but in reality, we should absolutely expect that God will open and close doors, and we should be okay with it. Let's turn our attention to this Macedonian location. We had the call. They're going to go to Macedonia. Let's see what happens next. We're going to look at verses 11 through 15. So here we go. From Troas, we, the four of them, or maybe more, put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. God's missionaries, those of us who are intentionally seeking the opportunity to be his ambassadors, we look for places and ways to connect with people. It's part of the mission. It's normal. It should be expected. You're going to have to connect and meet people. And then Jesus... And his sovereignty will connect those willing missionaries with those who he wants to hear the gospel. So missionaries should play about the, the places that they can go. Missionaries should pray about the places they should go. And in this particular case, they suspected the place they were going was a place of prayer. So that's pretty convenient. You might be surprised to learn this. Some of you know probably too well. I am an introvert. My batteries get greatly worn down here, around people, meeting new people, connecting environments, small talk. Those things just drain me. And being alone recharges me. So I have to work really, really hard for the sake of the gospel to go where I will encounter people. And to be there where I might be able to share the gospel and have conversations and kind of be in the stream of where those things are happening. And I need to tell you, especially you introverts, introversion is no excuse for not engaging in the mission of God. 
we have to work extra hard. It's just how God wired us. We need to work with that. So I have to be very intentional. I have to be intentional to go to the places where I can have encounters with people instead of the places that are dead where nobody's at. I'm intentionally going through the, the check stand where there's a human and not a self-checkout. Intentionally going and eating in places and going to places. We have to do this. My preference in my old job, I had a job downtown, and my preference was at lunchtime was to find a spot where nobody knew where I was. I could just hide out, eat my lunch. You know, everybody was going out to eat together. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to pack a lunch, partly because it's cheaper, but also because I don't want to be around all you, right? So I would find a little secret spot for that hour of my lunch break, and it was, it was wonderful to me, except it wasn't until I started planting myself in the break room and putting myself in those higher traffic areas that all of a sudden I had opportunities to share the gospel with people. I led two people in my work to the Lord just simply by saying, I'm going to eat lunch in the break room instead of hiding in the trees over here, right? Like finding secret places. I had to intentionally go where opportunity and doors might be open. Mission work takes intentionality. We have to think about it very carefully. How might you be more intentional about what you're doing with your time and where you are going so that you can join in Jesus' mission to reach lost people? Boy, the pandemic sure messed this up, didn't it, in so many ways. How many of us still have bad habits to avoid our neighbors, to avoid people? We're not going to be very missional if we keep to those bad habits. We need to intentionally seek to join where the doors might be open, where we can connect with others, so that maybe, by God's grace, we can share the gospel with others. Before we move on, I want to draw your attention to something here in verse 14. And we might find it really shocking. Some of, I've had some meetings with people lately. It might seem very shocking, but this missional reality is something we should expect and expect often and anticipate and look forward to and realize it is just exactly how Jesus builds his church. Verse 14 says, A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. And if you write in your Bible, underline this. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. The Lord did it. The Spirit of Jesus builds his church. It's his job. That's what he does. We share the message. We put it out there, but Jesus does the work. Jesus opens the hearts so that they will respond. We open our mouths to share the word. Jesus opens the hearts so that the word will be received. It's important that we recognize who does the saving work. If we get this backwards, if we get this wrong, boy, it puts a lot of weird pressure on us. It causes us to do really goofy, silly things. But if we get this right, and we're doing mission work by the means in which God says we should do it, then we're sharing the gospel, and then God's doing the work to open hearts and transform lives. We've got to put our trust in Jesus' means and methods for how we do mission work. He's already given us the plan. We don't need to go to 45 more conferences to figure it out. Share the gospel. Trust that God will open hearts. Now, where we're going next, I, I, you know, I like the CSB translation of the Bible. I think it's a pretty good translation. These are publishers. You have little pericope headings, little section headings. That's not part of the Bible. That wasn't put there by 
by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Luke. Luke didn't write that stuff down. That's just what the publishers do to help us find stuff as we're navigating through our Bible. And I'm just going to tell you, I really dislike where these section breaks are. In this next section, I don't really care for it because we have this really great narrative that's unfolding. There's tremendous drama. And right when it's picking up, right at the good parts, er, hit the brakes. Here's a section heading, and I think it jars our thinking out of what should be happening. So what I want to do is I want to take this next section as a whole narrative, as it is intended to be, with the whole flow of the story arc and all the stuff that should be there. So if you will be patient with me, I'm going to read 16 through 39. You know, I just, I'm hoping maybe you'll sit back and you'll see this narrative playing out as God intends for us to see it. Let's go ahead and read this together. Chapter 16, verses 16 through 39. Once, as we are, we're on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. I'm going to pause. That sounds pretty good, right? Got us walking billboard telling everybody who you are. Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out right away. When the owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, These men are seriously disrupting, excuse me, disturbing our city. They're Jews and they're promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them in the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. How about that? One more pause. If you got thrown in prison, how many of the songs and hymns that we sing would be in your heart and your mouth and your words to encourage you and share the gospel with the fellow prisoners? Are you singing songs that share the gospel? Or are you singing songs that do none of that? It's worth thinking about how we worship. Verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open. How convenient. And everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, because we're all here. Surprise. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, along with everyone in the house. He took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, 
and set a meal before them and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. Praise the Lord. Verse 35, when daylight came, the chief magistrates sent the police to say, release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released. So come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens, and threw us in jail. And now they're going to to send us away secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. This guy's brave. The police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to appease them, and escorting them out from prison, they urged them to leave town. I'm going to pick up that last verse in a minute. We, we want to say, we hope to say, that opposition to God's work should be unexpected. That's what we want it to be, right? We, 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 don't, want to, we don't want to think this is normal. But we would be wrong most of the time. It might not be that missionaries always stir the kind of trouble that causes them to, to be thrown in prison and have these kinds of issues, to be beaten. But the gospel is always offensive to a soul in bondage. If not, if the gospel is not offensive to those in sin, you might not be sharing the gospel. At least not the whole gospel. The gospel is always offensive to a sinful person. It should be even offensive to our sin every day because the gospel is assaulting it's doing war with it's mortifying and killing the sin in us that should be offensive the gospel is always offensive to a sinful person until god opens that person's heart and they receive his word That means the mission can be really difficult. That means the mission can be really dangerous. Joining Jesus as he builds his church may come with some conflict. We should expect it to come with conflict. We should expect that people will be offended. That should not surprise us. Today, sadly, it seems that the church is absolutely terrified about offending people. Now, we shouldn't be unnecessarily offensive and do dumb stuff, but we should recognize that when we proclaim the word of God, there will be some offense taken. People will be offended deep in their souls until their soul is set free. There may be some in here, right now, who are offended by Paul's words to the jailer. Verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You might, you might say, wait a minute, what? <laughs> I don't like that. I don't like that I even have to be saved. How presumptuous of you. How offensive. You might not like the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Because you want it to be, be a good person. Do what I'm doing. That's that's what most of us want to say. Let me be the measure. What must I do? Well, whatever I'm doing should be enough. No, I'm offended because the gospel says it's something else. Trust in Christ. Die to self. Live for Christ. Follow him. You might find that offensive. 
I don't know what you might find offensive in the gospel. I know the gospel is offensive to sin. I recognize that. I realize that. But if you are not offended, and you believe, the gospel will become one of the most beautiful, one of the most wonderful things that we've ever heard. Every time. Every time we find our forgiveness from the sin. Every day. Every time we're restored. It's beautiful to those who are being saved. Believe Jesus and he will save you. We should expect that Jesus saves people. We should expect that he's doing that work. That's how he builds his church. We should expect that sometimes it might be uneventful opportunities to share next to the river, to place a prayer. God just opens up a heart. But sometimes it might include earthquakes and beatings and jail. Either way, Jesus builds his church through the expected, through the unexpected, through the exciting, through the unexciting. There's one more thing I want us to see. Just one more verse before we, before we end. Look at this last verse. It's verse 40. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. Technically speaking, this is the end of this jail narrative, and it's the end of the larger mission trip in Philippi, so it probably needs to be included there, but I wanted to draw some very special attention to this. I don't want us to miss it. It's the kind of thing that you just don't see if you don't pull back once in a while. You've got to pull back and read large sections of Scripture to see some of these bigger connections. If you, if you dial in too closely, which you need to do that once in a while, there's two different ways to look at this. If you dial in too closely, you miss these sorts of things. If you only stay this zoomed out, you miss a lot of other things. But in this case, we're zoomed out, and there's something I do not want you to miss. So check this out. Lisa, excuse me, Lydia, Lisa and Lydia, they're my family, but Lydia in Philippi, not the Catherine home, was the first convert there in Macedonia, in Philippi. And her household believed. And then there was the jailer, and then his household heard the gospel, and they believed, and they were all baptized, and surely there were some others, and all of them were new believers. And then Luke tells us that Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, the missionaries, departed. They left. And, and then Luke follows Paul's journeys. He, he continues to follow this. But what happened to the new brothers and sisters in Philippi? What about them? What happened to them? Well, about 10 years after Paul went to Philippi, he wrote them a letter. Listen how he addresses the letter. Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Overseers? That's a pastor. Overseers, plural. They've got pastors. And deacons? they got deacons? This sounds like a fully established, grounded church. And then a part of the letter that Paul is writing, 10 years later, he's thanking them for supporting the mission work that he was doing 10 years later. This church with pastors and deacons that supports mission work is a church. And they've been one for 10 years. They joined Jesus in the mission work. What happened to them? They got on board with the mission. They joined in the work that Jesus was doing and they planted a local church. 
as Jesus builds his church universal. The point here is that it is normal and it is expected in mission work and in church building work that it's not just a handful of the top Christians doing the work. It's not just those you know, who are super spiritual and, and have an excitement for this. It's for all of us. It's expected that God's people join with God as he builds his church. Join with Jesus. Take part. You don't have to be Christian for years and years and years. Be a Christian for one minute. Join the mission. You don't have to go get a bunch of formal training. If God's calling you, do it, do it. But if not, either way, join the mission. You don't have to get it all figured out first. Just join the work. Jesus builds his church both by expected and unexpected means. Paul, Timothy, Silas, Luke, working on church work, expected. All these brand spanking new believers of weird and varying backgrounds getting involved with church work, unexpected. But how wonderful. Join the work. So what do you think? What do you think? Is there a way Jesus might be opening the door for you to join him in his work? Maybe partnering in prayer. Just simply praying for the lost. Partnering with others. Praying with them. Maybe generously giving financially to support the mission work in one way or another. Maybe getting some training. Maybe here or elsewhere. Maybe some formal training or, or some easy training so that you're better equipped to share the gospel with your friends and family and coworkers. Maybe getting really intentional about where you spend your time and where you go. Maybe it's just intentionality. Maybe God is calling you just to go across the street talk with your neighbors about Jesus. Maybe invite somebody to an event, a men's breakfast or senior luncheon or maybe sit next to you here at church or something else. Maybe God is calling some of us to go elsewhere on a short-term mission trip. And it'd be really convenient if he was calling a few of us to go to the same place. We'd all go together on a short-term mission trip. Or maybe, I hope, God is calling some of you to give your lives to the mission work here or somewhere else. Or maybe he's calling you to some other way, some unexpected thing that we, I can't even put in my notes here because I don't know what it is. Who knows? I know that God calls his people to join his mission. And he builds his church in, in all kinds of ways, expected ways, unexpected ways. So the question before us is, will you join him? Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful for the people who answered the call and shared the gospel with every one of us, whether it was a parent, a friend, a random missionary, a tract, something on TV. Who knows? Lord, you do unexpected things and expected things. God, we want to hear from you. Close doors, open doors, move us, direct us, that we can join your mission and see your church being built, that we can be with you as we engage in the Great Commission. Lord, let's be a church that engages in this well. Lord, we want to pray for the mission teams that are coming here. You've called them here. In some cases, you've closed some doors so they can't go elsewhere, and now they're, they're going to come here to help us, to, to make you known in this place, to proclaim who you are and your gospel of hope and salvation and reconciliation. Lord, we want to ask that you would bless them as they prepare. 
Lord, I especially ask that you would call us up to this task. You would open doors, that you would make ways, expected and unexpected, and we would faithfully walk through those doors and join you in your mission to build your church. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.